Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today I present a panel featuring Chris Creighton-Kelly, Lenore Gijig, and Lillian Allen, moderated by Larissa Lai. My name is Joshua Whitehead, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pigani, and Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This panel, entitled How We Used to Do It, Anti-Oppression, Revolutionary Gathering, slash We Remember, featuring Chris Creighton-Kelly, Lenore Gijig, and Lillian Allen, was recorded during a Tea House symposium called Wisdom Council in September of 2019. Wisdom Council recognized the imperfect knowledge transmission methods of the colonial system, and particularly the ways it has tended to fragment non-Western knowledges and privilege the textual over the oral. Using a combination of traditional and contemporary practices, it brought together a small council of mostly BIPOC senior practitioners in the contemporary arts to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, stories of the past, the present and the future, stories in cyclical time, community formations they've experienced, community formations they remember, how they understand the work that needs to be done, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in this present moment we're in. This panel was recorded as part of that gathering's work. Today in this panel, once again titled How We Used to Do It, Anti-Oppression, Revolutionary Gathering, slash We Remember, we are introduced to a plethora of amazing topics, including the power of remembering, communities versus institutions, censorship, language-defining positionality, and finding sites of resistance anywhere and everywhere. I'm so excited to introduce this panel to you. Please do enjoy. Lenore Gijig is a citizen of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation on the Saugeen Bruce Peninsula and resides in the home of the Chippewas of Nawash Unceded First Nation. Lenore is a storyteller, a poet, an award-winning author, a naturalist, a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. Her long-awaited first collection of poetry, A Running on the March Wind, was published in 2015. Currently, she works delivering programs that teach about the natural and the cultural history of the peninsula and the Great Lakes and helps area visitors to better understand their connections to the land and to the water. Chris Creighton-Kelly is an interdisciplinary artist, a writer, and cultural critic who was born in the UK of South Asian slash British heritage. His artworks have been presented across Canada and in India, Europe, and the United States. Chris is persistently interested in questions of absence in the art discourses of the Western world. Whose worldview is unquestioned? Who has power? Who does not? Chris also works as a consultant to many of Canada's art organizations, institutions, and agencies. He is currently co-director of Primary Colors. Lillian Allen is a professor of creative writing at Ontario College of Art and Design University. Multidisciplinary and experimental, Allen's creativity crosses many genres, including radio, theater, music, and film. As a writer, a featured artist, and producer-slash-director, and national radio show host, 
Allen is a recognized authority and activist on issues of diversity and culture, cultural equity, cross-cultural collaborations, and the power of arts in education, and has worked locally, nationally, and internationally in this capacity. Her eclectic, insightful, and inspiring lectures and performances have taken her far as Jamaica and Switzerland. She has also held the post of Distinguished Writer-in-Residence at Canada's Queen's University and the University of Windsor. So welcome to the first panel um, of the morning. Uh, we're doing we're doing all right for time actually. So after all that, we're it's good we're good. So maybe we'll just let it run a little a little, little a little teeny bit later, but only fifteen minutes not a big deal. Um, so this first panel uh, is called "How We Used to Do It: Anti-Oppression Revolutionary um, Slash Revolutionary Gatherings We Remember." Um, and the panelists are, on my left, Chris Creighton-Kelly, uh, on my right, Lenore Kishik, and to her right, um, Lillian Allen. Um, I'm not going to do the whole bio thing. You've got them in the back of your program, so if you would like to know more about these incredible humans um, uh, who I'm sitting beside, please um, um, just take a little, little boo uh, in the back of your program. Um, what I've asked everybody to do is just um, offer up a little five-minute, so there's not, we're not giving papers, but just a little five-minute talk spiel, provocation, um, set of ideas, just by way of starting off a conversation. And then we're just going to hang out and talk. Um, all right, so I haven't asked who would like to go first. Who would like to go first? <laughs> Must I put the thumb screws on? <laughs> CCK, would you, would you like to start? Yeah, three women up here, and you're going to ask me to start? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I would like to give honor to Anita, who can uh, stay as uh, ethnocentric as she wishes. Because I feel grateful for persons like you in this territory. Thank you for your welcome. And also thank you, Larissa, for inviting me here. Pleasure. And to Rebecca, where is she? Somewhere in this room. And Trin, who both treated me with great respect and answered all my stupid questions about uh, what's happening. And I appreciate that. I appreciate all of you. Thank you. And um, I didn't think I would go first, that's why I'm a little nervous here, and I thought I was actually planning what I was going to say in a kind of um, counterintuitive way to what I s expected these two amazing women to speak about. But maybe it's okay if I go first, and then they can counter uh, what I have to say. I think vis-a-vis uh, -vis what we talked about yesterday and the flow of co between communities and institutions and how vital that is, and, and to not polarize the conversation about people in communities and people in institutions to see it as a, a system. I want to honor these two women as well because although one of them I only just met uh, two days ago, 
and another one I've known for decades. Um, my relationship to them, their relationship to me, uh, illustrates very clearly what I'm talking about. Because I worked uh, at the Canada Council, and people have alluded to that, and I don't like to make a big deal out of it, but it's part of my history. Um, as the person who tried to begin the process to change the council from being such a Eurocentric organization, I was hired by the director in 1989 to begin that process. And as everyone, or not everyone, but many of you have alluded to who work inside of institutions, how difficult it is to do that. How lonely the work can be, how oppressive it can be, how it can make people sick from batting their heads against a, a system that doesn't really understand who you are or what you want to do or what you stand for. Um, that was happening to me when I worked there. There were great days. I don't want to paint it as all bleak. And luckily I had the support of the director of the council at the time, Joyce Siemens, who would protect me. There were people who wanted me out of there and who worked very hard to get me out of there with papers this thick of uh, why is this person here and what is he doing and all of this. I won't bore you with all those details. However, one of the things that sustained me and one of the things that I, I turned to in when I first made the decision to do it, because I wasn't sure if it was a good idea. I already had some kind of artist's intuition that it would be a nightmare. Um, was to ask people in communities whether I should do it or not. And so I went and I took a rest. I went to Key West. <laughs> and I um, phoned a lot of people across Canada. And to a person, with one exception, said, oh no, you have to do it. There's nothing to talk about here. You have to do it. So that gave me the courage and, and some kind of momentum to go back and and to begin the process. And then when you're inside these institutions, and many of you know what I'm talking about, you know there are people in community and you seek these people. One of these persons was Lillian. She was one of the first person I went to see. And one of the things she told me, because uh, I had known her from the Vancouver Folk Music Festival, I believe that's the first time we met Lillian. Getting too old to actually remember, but I think that's when, from years before. Um, and she told me in her kitchen that, um, the best way to deal with this, and you've got to remember now, I'm kind of naive about how all of this works, and is to just make sure that the white artists don't have any money for two years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that message back to the board, Lillian. <laughs> I thought, that's radical, it's revolutionary, it's like the way Lillian thinks, but it's never going to fly. And now, now I look back on it and I think, sure. yeah, that was a really good idea. And slowly that's starting to happen, um, but in more, uh, you know, kind of osmosis kind of ways, rather than radical ways. And the other person was Lenore, who I, as I say, just met two days ago. But she was one of those persons that people would talk about, and you have to meet Lenore, and you should go and meet Lenore, and all of this, but it never happened. And there was a specific moment when the fight back was really, really bad, the, the backlash, I should say, within the institution. And that's when uh, one of my committees came out with some recommendations for the board of the Canada Council and suggesting that in certain circumstances, especially when it came to um, indigenous people in Canada, but like, likewise other um, people of color, um, that certain... Uh, respect and permission would be needed before you use certain kind of images. To me, it was a pretty kind of basic thing. Oh, well, this was censorship. And the entire white arts community of Canada erupted into chaos. And I, you know, knew sort of how to handle it, and I would turn to people like Richard to help me to handle it. 
Um, and one of those people that I knew was out there defending these changes at the council was Lenore. So I had retreated to Vancouver for a few months where I lived at the time. I put on the radio one morning and there's Peter Zowski and there she is on a panel where others were saying, you know, you can't have censorship and you can't censor my mind. And she was defending the position of the committee. And so what is the point of this story? Well, the number one point is to pay homage to both of them and how, how I really appreciate their presence uh, in this long, long struggle. But also to show that when you're inside, that's always there. Those resources are always there. You just reach and you touch and there are folks there that will support you. So that's kind of what I wanted to say about that flow back and forth. And then uh, Larissa asked us to talk about revolutionary gatherings, we remember. And I can tell you all kinds of stories of stuff that I've done in communities. But I thought I would take an example of an institution. And again, I was going to pose that against what these two persons would say. So now they can talk about communities in relationship to institutions. So I'll tell you one story, and that'll be my five minutes. Um, while doing this work, uh, I was first asked in 1989 to... Uh, convene a multiculturalism committee. A multiculturalism committee inside the council, so it would have had only white people on it, because there were only white people aside from myself working there. I think Richard said maybe the cleaners, some of the cleaners might have been of color. And so I said, no, well, I can't do that because I'm not, whatever I'm going to do, because I wasn't too sure of myself, I'm not going to include indigenous people on a multiculturalism committee. You would start immediately wrong and you would insult indigenous people. So after long fights, we were able to create something called a, a native, native Arts Community, Native Arts Advisory Committee, and then another committee which took, I think, six hours to determine its name, because there was constant, uh, and actually it was Richard Fung who finally, um, who was the diplomat who broke the logjam of, uh, no, multiculturalism, no, no, uh, anti-racist, no, multiculturalism. And he came up with this wording, which still existed today. Um, it's the... Advisory Committee for Racial Equity in the Arts. Um, if I may correct. Please. Oh, please, please. I think that's the equity, but the council wouldn't go for it, so they call it racial equality. Right, you're right, thank you. I think it's now called, you're right, actually. But it just goes to show how these, the language defines positionality, and you're constantly fighting over what is really trivial things. It could have easily have been called the Anti-Racist Committee, Advisory Committee of the Arts. Um, so anyway, so these two committees existed in their separate streams and they went on for two years to basically to analyze the council and to provide recommendations. And then there was a day where um, I insisted that the, the two committees meet the board. They didn't like this idea, but fortunately, thank you to uh, Alan Gottlieb, wherever you are, Alan, um, very conservative man, but he understood, he wasn't afraid of anything because he was a former ambassador to the US and he had a big personality. He was the chair of the board at the time and. Uh, he said, yeah, sure, let's do it. He, he, I guess he thought he could learn something, um, which I think he did. Um, in any case, so this meeting happened. And so it was a luncheon meeting, and the two committees showed up in the morning as we kind of planned our strategy, what we would do when we actually met the board. And for some reason that day, people were really psyched up, and they were lighting sweet grass and incense, and the whole council was in the, the director, Joyce, who had supported me in my work, she was starting to freak out a little bit. She's like, what are you guys doing in here, coming, coming down the hallway because she was bouncing between the two meetings. 
I don't know. I don't know. Is, is the burning of sweet cash so frightening to people that they have to worry? I don't quite understand, but whatever. So, um, so now the moment comes. We're, we're in the same room as them, and the idea was that we would have lunch together with the board, which has all the authority, many of whom did not like what was going on, uh, and we would kind of introduce ourselves. You know, we've all been at meetings like that. So what happened? So our plan was to go first, um, and then I would uh, say something about uh, what, what the work was, and the members of the two committees would introduce themselves, and then Alan would go up and speak and introduce the board members and, you know, pro forma kind of thing. So what happens is I start uh, with the Indigenous Committee, obviously, it was called the Native Committee at that time, and the senior member of this committee was Alan Isabon-Smith. So I say, blah, 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 Alan Isabon-Smith. And what I had expected, what we had agreed to do, is Alan would say something like, you know, I'm a filmmaker, and I've done this, this, this. She gets up out of her chair like this. She puts her chair like this, pushes it in, and starts to sing in Wabeniki, I think is the language that she speaks. And she goes on for 10 minutes, and nobody dares stop her. And she just transforms immediately that moment. And that moment of a community person, if you will, entering an institution, changing immediately the dynamics and the meaning of what that meeting is supposed to be. It sticks with me forever, up till this moment. Well, naturally, that moment emboldened the other folks on the committee, and then Tom Hill got up, and he put his chair in like this, and he started telling a prayer in Seneca, and then Margot Kane, and then, uh, and finally, that got to the uh, racial uh, equality committee. Thank you, Richard. Uh, and they did the same. And so this went on at a meeting which was supposed to last two hours. I think it probably lasted about an hour and a half, and we had spent the first half hour just eating. So the board of the Canada Council never had a chance to introduce themselves. <laughs> Alan, Alan Gottlieb just got up. It was time for things to end, and he said, uh, well, that was very interesting, or words, words, words like that. And why do I cite this moment? It's, it's a strong memory for me. But it's a moment to show that sites of resistance can be everywhere. And they can exist in institutions. And one of the things I wanted to say yesterday that I didn't say, and I'll end on this. Those of you who are indigenous or of color and you're in institutions, I really support you. I really need to say that because I've been there. I can't do it myself anymore. I cannot be in an institution. But that's okay that I can't do it. I don't make that a holier-than-thou kind of position or, you know, um, I think it's very important that you're there. I don't want to think that indigenous scholars and scholars of color cannot be in these institutions because that's, that's like infantilizing people, and I don't want to do that. Oh, well, indigenous people, they can't think, and they're not smart enough, and they have all these traditional ways. Nonsense. It's utter nonsense, and we all hear that shit. So I just want to express my solidarity to, to David, to Richard, to Larissa, to Aruna, to Fred Emeritus, to Smarrow, and people who work in institutions. Um, because I work in a community, and I do community work, it, it's this motion, what France calls the le passeur. You go back and forth, and you take the information back and forth. So my revolutionary story is not part of any revolution. Hmm. It's uh, about institutions. Okay. <laughs> um. <clears throat>
my community has always been a community of revolutionaries. Um, so I come by it honestly. <laughs> um, if any of you are familiar with the writing of uh, my cousin Basil Johnson, his book Indian School Days, um, there are stories in there about how the children in residential school rebelled. Um, my father did not go to residential school. He went to Indian Day School on, on the reserve. Um, he was punished for speaking um, Anishinaabe Moin. He was punished for speaking French, the only two languages he was fluent in. And then he was punished for giving the wrong answer in English. And at that time, he only knew two words, yes, no. Um, consequently, he, um, he didn't teach us our language when I was young. Um, my father went to school long enough to, um, I guess he was about 17, he said he, he was in school long enough to learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic. And then he had to go and make his way in the, in, in the, in the world. And he ended up in um, um, lumber camp in northern Ontario. And he said uh, the life was good there. The work was hard, but they got good, uh, good food, lots of food. They had warm place to sleep. And they got paid once a month. So with his first pay, um, everyone went into, uh, into the nearest town and drank the money away. <laughs> so they had to go back. So an, another month went by and my dad did a lot of thinking at that time. Uh, so he wasn't gonna drink his money away so quickly. So when they went into the town, he went to the hotel and actually had a nice warm bath, bought himself a warm bath. And then he went to the library. And his reason for going to the library is because he wanted to read. And uh, the, he, he wanted to find books about native people. He wanted to read about, about uh, our history, uh, our, our cultures. And he, he was very sad because there weren't that many books there, maybe one or two. And what he read all predicted that the Indian was going to vanish from the face of the earth within 50 years. And so like he's 17 years old. And in 50 years, he might be the only Indian guy around. And it really bothered him. And he felt he had to do something about it. So it took him a while to figure out what it was. He did a lot of thinking. So this is his. Uh, this is his. Uh, his his action, <laughs> or his thinking. He decided what he would do was, he would find himself a nice young wife and fuck like crazy. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> 
I am, I'm the oldest of 10. Now there are 30 something grandchildren, uh, 24 something uh, great grandchildren, and at least two great great grandchildren. Myself, I have uh, five children. I have seven grandchildren. I have a grand, uh, great granddaughter. So I'm, I'm a political statement. <laughs> so <laughs> now, how did my, uh, how did uh, my personal revolution begin? It began in Indian Day School. Uh, it was a mission school, St. Mary's School, uh, in our community, Nyashingaming. Uh, it was run by the Sisters of St. Joseph. It's a federal school, so the money came from the federal government. And um, this, was, this incident was just, it was just happened on a very beautiful, beautiful fall day. You know, the, the air was warm, the, the trees were just in their glory, and the apples were on the ground under the, under the apple trees. And all of us kids, I don't know how many we were there, maybe 30-something uh, kids from uh, primer class all the way up to, to, to grade eight, and we were out at our lunch period, and we were hooting and hollering and running and having just a really wonderful time. And then Sister Helena came out onto the back porch, and I can, I can still see her now, black and white against the, the gray limestone wall. And she started yelling at us. She said, stop this, stop this. You're all acting like a bunch of wild Indians. <laughs> and we stopped. And we grumbled. Wild Indians? And then the older boys, they said, let's show her some wild Indians. <laughs> let's show her wild Indians. So they went over to the, to the nuns' uh, pigeon coop. <laughs> the nuns kept these uh, white pigeons, white, big-breasted, fan-tailed pigeons. <laughs> so they reached into the pigeon coop, and they pulled out feathers. And we took, each of us took those feathers and we put them in our hair. And then we went out through the yard looking for uh, sticks about two feet long. And we took those sticks and we plunged those sticks into the hearts of those fallen apples. And we hoisted those apples up <laughs> over our heads and we ran around and around and around that school yelling and whooping, being wild Indians. <laughs> Let's go do it now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I guess that's why I'm a warrior woman. <laughs> uh, the issue of uh, cultural appropriation uh, was something that, um, that I thought long and hard about. Uh, my friend Daniel Moses was a member of the Writers' Union of Canada. And um, 
one day he's, he, I, I, I was published. Uh, he said, you're published. He said, uh, why, don't you, why don't you join? He says, because it's really lonely there. I'm the, only, I'm the only writer of color. And so I, 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 I joined. And there were a lot of other things going on out in, in the community. There was this anthology being published about uh, about uh, black women and their culture, and uh, this uh, white woman had uh, white writer had given a story uh, for consideration, uh, and I was listening to what was going on with uh, with Lily in here about uh, uh, being a poet uh, with dub poetry, and uh, so I. I could hear what was going on, and I told Daniel, I said, Dan, I'm going to speak up. Um, and I had to talk with him about that, because we had started a group uh, called the Committee to Reestablish the Trickster. <laughs> and this was because, again, uh, it was really difficult for Aboriginal people, Native people, to, to get our work published. Um, uh, publishers were always deferring to white writers. Uh, our work was always being measured against the backdrop of uh, uh, Euro-Western uh, uh, literature and not recognized as being something on its own. So we established the committee to reestablish the trickster. And so that's why I had to have this heart-to-heart -heart talk with Dan about, about standing up. Um, I didn't know when it was going to be uh, or where it was going to be, but it actually uh, came about, it was in the, um, uh, through the Writers' Union of Canada. Um, because there was already talk, there were already protests going on about uh, about cultural appropriation, and uh, so there was uh, at one of the annual conventions uh, there was um, there was a, a workshop or a talk, and oh, who was it? It was Brian something or other who was actually going to facilitate that particular, that particular um, um, session. And uh, the, uh, the speakers, none of them were native. And Daniel and I were sitting up in the back of the, uh, the bleachers there. And, um, and I said, okay, Dan, we got we to gotta do something. <laughs> And so the facilitator started to do, do the introduction. And uh, I stood up and I challenged that you're doing this session and yet you don't have any <laughs> Aboriginal people there. Well, let me help you. <laughs> so I grabbed Daniel's arm and I said, come on, Dan. <laughs> And I dragged him down to down to the front and up onto the stage. Um, of course, there was all kinds of uh, debate on whether this should be allowed or not, <laughs> but we didn't move. And um, we got to we got to to say what we had to say, 
or what we needed what we needed to say. During the uh, the issue of uh, cultural appropriation, I realized that I could only speak from my perspective, Anishinaabe perspective. I could not speak for bright, uh, Asian writers or, or black writers. I could only speak for Native writers. And it's the shared emotion, I mean, that helps us speak for everyone. Um, And, uh, and so I always, my perspective was to present Anishinaabe perspective, the, the, the native perspective, because other people would be listening. Because our, our experiences were, were, uh, were, very, uh, were very similar. Um, and uh, it's through uh, the, my involvement with the, um, with the, um, um, writers Union that uh, eventually we got the Racial Minority Writers Committee and I was the founding chair for that and um, yeah that's 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 how it started <laughs> but I always I always prayed beforehand I always had a, a migas shell or I had a tobacco tie uh, with me, and if I didn't, then I would smudge uh, beforehand, before actually going out to count coup. And and that was that was that was my strength. Um, it was around about that time too that I um, that I. Um, decided I want to be a, a storyteller and, and go back to being uh, working with the with the oral tradition and I really didn't know how because uh, coming out of the uh, Indian day school system the federal system uh, we were uh, our language and our culture was discouraged uh, we had no civilization we were told our stories were figments of a primitive imagination. And in my new heart, I knew that wasn't true. So I, I decided I would be a storyteller. I, uh, I went to my elder, gave her my sema, my tobacco, and I went out fasting. I went out to sit on the land. And one of the visions that uh, came to me at that time after I fought my, away my fears was that this little mouse came into my lodge while I was lying down and kind of danced, to, danced on my head. And, and when I was doing then uh, the work on cultural appropriation, whenever, whenever I got up to speak, this little mouse was, <laughs> was, was dancing up here. And there's a story about the little mouse, that the little mouse uh, was, the, was the only one who would stand up and confront the monsters. So um, here I am now, kind of remembering that time 
and passing those memories on to you, for you to remember and tell younger generations that we fought a good fight. Miigwech. Thank you so much. Lillian. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so, um, in um, teaching creative writing, uh, one of the things that uh, students are terrified about is, of course, the blank page. Um, because they think they must at, all at once be smart and all learn to write. I always like to point to the fact that I, then I ask them a question or start talking about something and elicit their input. And they talk away and talk away. And I said, uh, you've just lost confidence in your ability to write. But look at how you just talked. Did you know how <laughs> it was going to end? <laughs> Did you know you were going to say all those things before? And um, so I, I gave them that frame in terms of um, working with their writing. And then, of course, later on, you know, it's, it's a matter of developing that. And scientifically, it takes seven drafts, actually, to get there. But I'm just saying that because I want to excuse myself in terms of that. I don't know where this is going to go. That's a little bit of confidence that would go somewhere. Uh, this morning I jotted down a number of things, which I call number of nodules or nodes, that um, I want to touch upon. Some of it would be quite narrative and linear, and some would just be sporadic or episodic. Um, with me, um, I just, just give you some of my background. I grew up in colonized uh, Jamaica, in the middle of um, uh, 10 children. Uh, five girls and five boys <laughs> um, in around family. The family owned a lot of things around, which I gave to other people. Uh, so beside my grandmother, my aunts, who mainly didn't get married, or if they married, they stuck together, or they came back um, to be with each other. Um, and my parents, uh, my father's still alive, he's 98. My mother passed a few years ago. And uh, when she died, they would have been married for like 71 wow. years. Wow. Um, she always said, uh, I raised you 10 kids and your father. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So... So yeah, so my family, you know, we were aspiring, we were the first to go to high school. Even with my other cousins and aunts, they didn't make it. My father's family was the first to go to high school. Um, and um, we had that elevated status um, where we, in, in the region where we lived and so forth. And what that meant to go into high school, apart from having that elevated status where people looked up to you, and in some ways it's right because much is given, much should be expected. 
Um, but in the process of schooling, it's a process that schooled you away from your family and away from your community, um, which I find is the same thing with education here. Um, and so I started to be bothered by that. So the whole idea of the schooling was you lighten up, you whiten up, you become a little person. Um, and that my grandmother, who was the matriarch and who I love, my grandfather had long died before I was born, was becoming less relevant. And it was somebody I should almost be ashamed of. Um, and that threw up a lot of conflict for me because um, I couldn't see it. The other thing that um, um, was in the mix was with 10 children, my mother, I would wake up at six and my mother would be up already, making breakfast, washing, whatever, um, helping my father iron his stuff. Um, and I would go to bed We'd come home for lunch, it was about a mile up to a mile back, and you get a big cooked lunch when you come home. That was the biggest meal. And um, sometimes you drag people in, right? And you go back to school and you come home in the evening, um, and you rustle up supper, go get bullet cakes for the dogs, etc. And I would go to bed, you do your homework, that's very important. Um, and uh, I'd go to bed and my mother would still be doing something washing or ironing or something. And I figured, well, how did those people get Mercedes-Benz? And how did they live on the top of a hill in the most beautiful place, you know, compared to what we had and what we lived in, and, you know, the hand-me-downs and all of that, which is all quite great. But I started to see the disparity. And I'm like, did they, their days have more hours than my mother? You know, and... Um, just viscerally, I knew there was some kind of injustice. And I think that was where combining those two things would be where my kind of political consciousness uh, took root. So um, it's always been clear to me, and everything I've been involved in, and I declare it, is that I'm here to represent grassroots values and the grassroots and liberation of the grassroots. Um, and that's the position that I've taken in everything I do. Um, so barreling down a little bit, I know we're here for the arts and academia, but um, in the Toronto scene, there are a number of people, and I'm conscious we're recording so that people later on uh, do research, you'll know, there are a number of people that need to be noted. Marlene Green um, and um, Fran Endicott. Fran Endicott was at Boise, um, and she had Third World in Canada. That was her program. Um, and um, so these two women were, reminded me of my family. They were fierce as hell. Um, and they started, um, along with some other radical black <coughs> folks, um, I can't remember their name, Franklin Henry and some other folks, an organization called the Black Education Project. 
that the Globe and Mail once described as a communist front. When West Indian students were coming um, into Canada, they basically streamed them into the trades. It didn't matter what their abilities were, right? Um, and they did have English is a kind of second dialect, and uh, they paid no attention to that. Uh, they would, um, so they formed this organization to address that. And um, they attracted some radical folks, and then they built out the organization um, in the community. And they had things like Family Day. Um, they, uh, then they started to listen to the concerns of um, people in the community, which were mostly parents, because parents were very vested, were invested in that all their labors and their sacrifice would be for, to make a better life for their children, not for them, right? So that was their kind of main concern. So they took that up and um, created this kind of hub and galvanizing presence in the black community. And um, it was transnational because the West Indian community spread out and then it spread out in the black community with the influence of the black power movement. Um, I think the Warren Commission showed that they planted an expanter into the group um, to try and uh, do something. He, he introduced uh, violence. This is all documented. He introduced guns. I understood. Um, on a house in Christie, when he brought it, they were all scared. They've never seen guns in their lives. And somebody drove it out somewhere near Barry and dug a hole and planted them. They, none of these people even had a parking ticket, right? So this guy's always talking about and violence. He drove around a limo, and et cetera. So this is all documented. It's from the Warren Commission, if anybody wants to look that up later. Um, so, um, so it also became you know, a, a hub that, that integrated a lot of aspects of the black community. Black community is very tough, right? Because when you travel, the idea is that you up your status and you try and up your status in somebody else, right? So you don't move across your class lines or your social lines. You get a chance now to reinvent yourself and of course you're gonna reinvent it. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of jockeying within the community. So to have an organization that could pull people together um, was uh, very good. So, you know, they linked up with the bookstores, um, all kinds of black professionals, etc. It was a place that all the black intellectuals who came from other places um, would stop, would come to see. Yeah, whether it's entertainer, the Jackson people, or um, Soka Carmichael, or anybody like that. So anyway, I just wanted to make sure that was there. So I got my schooling in that context with those people. Mostly I um, provided programs and day-to-day -day, um, tutorial work for young black kids, not exclusively, because that's <coughs> almost impossible to happen. Um, mostly from, um, not well, quite a number of people from various projects, housing projects around. Um, so I managed that organization for a number of years. 
and um, just working with those women when listening to them talk to the funders and like, not over my dead body! <laughs> like, boo! <laughs> so, um, that really, I think, was, was, was good training for me and good nurturing. Um, so, I was able to um, use that and use that support and that cachet that I developed uh, working in the community, helping people, both students and researchers, because researchers from Oise were flocking there. I wouldn't do that now with all their, you know, forums, uh, questionnaires to get your PhDs, whatever, right? Um, it was the place, right? So um, went out into an, uh, to, to, to build programs, because one of the concepts was that you need to build infrastructure. You need to build organizations. Otherwise, the work will be for naught. And that made perfect sense to me. So I <coughs> took that on seriously. And um, I you know, moved to other organizations, helped to build other organizations. Um, um, IMICAN, Youth Project, a key cultural organization, Culture for Survival, Culture for Unity, that actually was part of the transforming figure um, of of, of Toronto culture, um, working with people at Parachute Club and even before that, um, some other folks on Queen Street to actually transform what was going there. Before that, it was a little apartheid Toronto. The cultures didn't necessarily meet. And um, that was really uh, the critical moment that turned Toronto into this cultural, multicultural hub, so to speak. So um, worked with that organization that was emerging as, um, or was already a poet, but kind of panning it down, because you know it's, it's kind of the Jamaican personality. Um, but uh, couldn't resist, and got a lot of support from the people I worked with. Those were mostly young men who were termed unemployable. We had a program, for example, where they made art objects and craft objects, small furniture, and every Friday they got paid. It was a government grant, and every Friday the police would be at the bank wanting to arrest them to where they get the checks, like over and over and over again. This was the kind of thing that went on. Um, so um, this was located in the Regent Park area. Um, to me, that was where the only creativity that existed in Toronto at the time was coming from. I'm talking real creative. I'm not talking about you know mixing around. I'm talking about opening up space, and that was very important in terms of uh, influencing my own work. Right, asserting these possibilities, facing the contradictions, determined to fight them, seeing beyond that. To me, that is the kind of creativity that um, fueled the, the whole kind of uh, uh, cultural movement in, in Toronto. So um, another person, Ayanna Black, and sometimes my time is out. She should not be forgotten. She um, was a poet, um, a mental health nurse, but she worked across um, cultures, worked with fireweed, 
organized, um, you know, jazz series and so forth, but it was always about community. She passed on some 10, 15 years ago. Um, she was always, they always said, man, y'all is working with the white people. <laughs> you know, she's gone. We're white people. Is she gone? And she's working there. And once she gets there, you're going to see black people and people of color. And that was a good example for me, too, because I figured, yeah, you can do it, right? So, um, so I just want to make sure that her name is there, too. Um, before that, I'm going to say this on the record, um, I was involved in starting an organization called Black Youth Community Arts Project, BICAP, I can't remember what it means, with UNIA where a certain person was the leader. And we actually organized the first black writers conference in Canada. But <coughs> we organized it left before the actual conference <coughs> because of sexual harassment that we couldn't stand up to. Um, when we talked to some of our elders about it, they said, learn to defend yourself. Um, so that person, a well-known harasser, not in, in, uh, in with us now, but well-known, right? And we just decided, let that be. But that was very pivotal moment in black Canadian literary history. It brought um, Brand, um, George, Elliot, and some other people together, a whole bunch of other people. Um, so, um, I remember an incident, I just have a few things here I'd love to get on, and, and organizing in Jane and Finch also. Um, a lot of outreach out there, people are afraid to go into the community, um, white organizations, um, some of our folks. Um, we went out there asking for support to develop programs and so forth, and I remember um, the then Attorney General was the MP for the area. We had a meeting, he came by. First of all, when we had meeting there, anybody who drove a car will get a ticket. They'll just come by, there's a meeting, black folks have the meeting, so they ticket all the cars. Um, and Gerald Kaplan was um, the MP, we asked to meet with him. He came and we tell him, well, there's a problem here, you know, they're, they're coming, they're used to big yards, they're used to this, they're now in these apartments. Um, the parents are working three jobs. We need to put them in programs. We'll do it. We just need to support whatever we're begging, right? We need to get some of the artists in the school to do some Louise Bennett's poem, to speak the language, etc. And he listened, actually. <coughs> but then he said, well, sounds good, but what if the Greeks wanted the same thing? What if they did? And um, I don't know what, how, where I got this from, and I said, Oh, we'd be the first to support the Greeks and the Jewish people. Oh, yes, 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 let them know. We want to, right? And you could see him relax and said, okay. And that was the first set of funding that we got to do work in that area. And out of that came, you know, a, a lot of things. Some of the names I can't remember now, but, um, you know, some of those people, you know, are, have really distinguished themselves in terms of that, especially music culture. So that's out of the grassroots community way back. Um, Central neighborhood house should not be forgotten when the black kids couldn't go there because they'd get whooped by the white kids. Um, and so they told the black kids to stay home. 
Hi folks. Unfortunately, this panel's recording was cut short due to technical problems with our equipment. There is more to the conversation, and if you are interested, I highly recommend staying tuned into our forthcoming panel discussions. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed that panel featuring Chris Creighton Kelly, Lenore Gijig, Lillian Allen, and moderated by Larissa Lai. Once again, my name is Joshua Whitehead, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stoichel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Munier, and myself. Our music is Moniker of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.tiahouse.ca. And if you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Till next time.